In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. This is the first Sunday of Advent, indeed the first Sunday of the church year. We're beginning a brand new lectionary cycle, a brand new year in the church. We're starting afresh, and we're starting afresh in preparation. We're preparing to celebrate the coming of Christ. We're coming to celebrate His birth. And we celebrate His birth uh, not because we're nostalgic. Sometimes uh, Christmas is presented to us as a nostalgia fest, right? We're always looking back and trying to make things the way that they were. And really, if you read the scriptures, you can see that, uh, that that's not the case in the scriptures. The scriptures are not nostalgic. The Lord's prophecies are not about go back to the way things used to be when they were great, because there is no such time. And so when we're going to to remember back to the coming of Christ, we're doing that to inform uh, why it is that he came, why it is that he has had to come and redeem us, what that means for us now, and so that we can prepare for his coming again. Because he tells us when he came the first time that he is coming again, and that we're supposed to be looking and preparing and even cultivating a longing for his coming. We're cultivating a longing for his coming. Longing is easily cultivated. The world would cultivate it for us. It would have us yearn for or long for material things, for pleasures of the body, for fame, for glory, for all kinds of things. But for us to take responsibility and to take direction and to set our hearts aright so that we're longing for the right things takes a season like Advent. When we pull the weeds of our hearts, when we remove those things that are between us and the Lord so that we can focus upon Him, our God and soon coming King. So during this season of Advent, we're looking back to see how it is that he has come before so that we can anticipate and prepare for his coming again. And one of the prophets that we turn to for this is the prophet Zechariah. You'll remember that the prophet Zechariah is born in Babylon. He is born in that period of of the Babylonian exile. And he's one of those that returns to the Holy Land. So the prophet is uh, born in Babylon and then goes to the Holy Land once Cyrus, the king of Persia, Persia, uh, sends them back uh, so that they can restore the temple and uh, the worship of the Lord. So Zechariah goes back. He's a contemporary of Haggai's and he's just a little bit before Ezra and Nehemiah, who we really think about because they take on that great work of the rebuilding of the temple and the restoring of the walls of Jerusalem. But Zechariah is very much a part of that task. And so what he's doing is he is uh, preparing the people and he is warning them about what it is that they need to do to be, uh, again, focused in the right way upon the Lord so that they can restore that right worship. And the way that he does that is in this way that uh, we see the telling of time over and over again in the scriptures, which is a spiral time. It isn't this straight ahead time, and it isn't this circular time. Remember, we've talked about how the pagan world always has a circular time. It's a repetition. There's uh, no progress. There's no uh, moving forward. It's simply a repetition. And that informs a worldview, doesn't it? When all things are going to stay the same and remain the same. 
Then there's the modern contemporary or enlightenment view of time, which is a straight forward shot, right? And that is uh, built in our uh, hearts and minds, a kind of a progressive value, right? That there's always progress. There's always this uh, beneficent moving forward, right? Things are always going to get better. And the scriptures, we see something different. We see this spiral time where we get this repetition of themes and we get this repetition of events, uh, but they're always new and moving forward. So that's what we want to keep in mind when we're reading Zechariah because he's balancing two things. He is warning them about a destruction of Jerusalem, uh, which is really interesting because they've already experienced the destruction of Jerusalem. They've already been sent into exile, and now they're preparing to go back. And already he's preparing them for another destruction of Jerusalem, which of course comes again under Alexander the Great, and it comes again under the Romans. And so we see this repeated over and over again. We see this restoration of the temple, right? Again, uh, done and redone. And so uh, we see this, uh, this movement of the establishment of right worship at Jerusalem, its destruction, and then its establishment again. And what Zechariah is pointing to is he's looking forward this uh, right worship in Jerusalem is to the Messiah. And he's saying that the Messiah is going to establish finally and completely the right worship of God. And we get all of these wonderful uh, foretellings of the coming of the Messiah, which of course Jesus fulfills most prominently here in chapter 14 and verse 4. His feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. And of course, uh, Jesus standing on the Mount of Olives is a key uh, place for him as he prepares to cleanse Jerusalem and as he finally cleanses the whole world with his blood. He says, the Lord will come and all the holy ones with him. This is again something that Jesus uh, completes and foretells that when he comes again, he's going to come with all of his saints, which is a really important point for us to settle on and focus on for a minute. Number one, the idea of Jesus coming. This is a kind of antithesis to the way that heaven is sometimes talked about in the church. Sometimes heaven is talked about as this kind of space travel. I'm going to go up and away to the place that's really my home, right? I don't belong here. My home is someplace far away, and I'm going to go up and away to that place. That's not the way that the scriptures talk about it at all. It's Christ who is coming again to this place, and he is making this place holy. So this is the place that God has created. This is the place that he has made us. This is our home, but it's been soiled, and it's been disrupted, and it's been, um, it's been wounded, and the Lord is coming to restore it and to heal it and to reestablish it and us all of creation for himself. And when he does that, when he comes again, he's also bringing all of his holy ones. Who are these? These are the holy ones of the past. These are all the the patriarchs. These are all the martyrs and saints. These are all the holy ones who have known God. Those that we don't even know about, right? The famous ones and the ones that we don't even know their names, right? We read about that a couple of weeks ago in Ecclesiasticus, about those holy ones that only God knows. So all those that have been with him, right, dwelling in paradise at his second coming, will come again with him. And so we're not only anticipating the coming of Christ to reestablish his kingdom, but for all all the holy ones of God to come with him. And so this is the promise that Zechariah focuses on. 
when he comes again, there's going to be this reestablishment of the, of the order of the world that is perplexing to us, it's mysterious to us, and it should be, for a couple of reasons. Number one, there's a fantastic temptation in the world to try to count this time and try to figure out when this is going to happen, and really that doesn't seem to be the point of the scriptures, right? It's given to us in a way that we can't do that kind of calculation. So the idea is we're always supposed to be prepared, we're always supposed to be anticipating. And the other thing is that when he talks about the created order, it's a way that is um, that's radically uh, switched or, or kind of turned upside down, right? This idea of, of mountains being made low and valleys being raised up. And we see this in his talking about light, right? He says that it shall be neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. In other words, God himself is going to provide the light. So we are looking to him who is going to provide all the light. He is going to provide the light that we need to see the world and to see ourselves. So we are going to be looking at the world through the light of God, which is a scary thing. Because the darker we are, the farther away we are, the more we think, I'm not too bad. I'm pretty good, right? But it's like when the lights get really bright and the mirror gets really close, and I can take my glasses off and I say, oh, I'm older than I thought, right? I thought I was looking pretty good with the lights low. As we come closer to Christ, the more clearly we see our own imperfections and our own need for a Savior. So it's paradoxical, isn't it? The closer we get to God, the more we mourn our sins and perceive them. And so it's him that we're looking to. It's him that we will receive that light. It's him in whom we will trust. And of course, Jesus comes and fulfills this. He fulfills everything, especially this beautiful piece about the Mount of Olives. In this passage from Luke's Gospel here in chapter 21, uh, we read that he has been spending the nights in the Mount of Olives. So this is that period of Holy Week between his entry on Palm Sunday, right? His entry into Jerusalem when he cleanses the temple and his death on Good Friday, right? His crucifixion. He spends that whole week and he's sitting on the Mount of Olives with his disciples disciples praying at night and then in the morning he's walking down the Kidron Valley up into the city of Jerusalem and he's going to the temple and he's cleansed it and then he's preaching and he's teaching in the temple precincts. So his prayer there in the Mount of Olives is a very important thing for us to note from Zechariah because he has been praying this as the high priest. He has been gathering our sins the way the olives were gathered in that garden and he is pressing them into himself, much like those olives were pressed to make the oil. Our sins are being pressed into him by that great stone and so that he is filling himself with the sin of the whole world, which then he is going to take with him down the Kidron Valley back up into Jerusalem where he will stand trial not for himself but for us. So he is there preparing himself and preparing this this splitting that Zechariah talks about of the Mount of Olives. Indeed it will be split uh, just like that olive seed is split under that heavy stone of justice. 
And so the Lord tells us that we're supposed to be watchful. We're supposed to be, again, longing and cultivating our hearts, much like a farmer does. You know, farmers don't miss anything when it comes to the weather, the smallest bud of a tree, the smallest green leaf. They're having to look and maintain because if they miss a time to plant or a time to seed or a time to to pull weeds or a time to water, then a crop can be lost. It takes a kind of really intense focus and watching and that's the kind of attitude that's the kind of heart that we're supposed to have for the lord we're supposed to be watching and we're supposed to be looking to see the signs of the times and we're supposed to be looking especially at our own hearts which is why we start advent the beginning of the year with that wonderful great litany right it reminds us of all those ways that our hearts can go astray all those things that we're supposed to be attentive to the poor and those who are oppressed and and all those who are broken and to our own temptations right we're supposed to be watching those things and we're supposed to be uh, carefully cultivating our hearts pulling out those little weeds of of pride or of ambivalence that grow into our hearts so that we can keep a heart pure and focused upon the word of god Sometimes when we think about the Lord coming, we think, oh, the weight of sin, and we start to kind of uh, bow down, and we think, oh, it's too much for us. But the Lord is very clear about how it is that we're supposed to receive him. We're supposed to be straightening up and raising our heads. We're supposed to be shoulders back, and we're supposed to be looking for him and anticipating him because we know that he has forgiven our sins. We know that he has washed away all of our sins. It's he that's done this. And the reminder of how we're supposed to to think about that is in the fig tree. Isn't it interesting that he mentions the fig tree out of all the trees of the earth? When we read fig tree, what do we immediately go back to? Adam and Eve, right, in the Garden of Eden. What did they do when they perceived their own sin? They took fig leaves to cover their shame. The fig leaf is the last leaf you'd ever want to pick. It has thousands of tiny little spines on it. If you've ever uh, touched a fig leaf, it is the roughest, worst kind of leaf. These thousands of tiny little spines will embed themselves in the skin and will create a horrible rash. And that's what happens when we uh, cover our sin. When we try to cover it, it becomes kind of a rash Right? It's like when you've chipped a tooth and you keep rubbing your tongue over that chipped space over and over again, like you keep checking, is it still there? Yeah, it's still there until we rub our tongues raw. Right? That's the way we do with our hearts when we keep going back over that sin and over it and over it and over it. We rub ourselves raw and covering up that shame. We're supposed to be exposing ourselves to Christ and saying, yes, I've sinned. Yes, I need your redemption. Yes, I need your love. Yes, I need to be restored by you with our heads held high, knowing that it's because of his love and mercy that we're saved, not because of anything that we've done, but because his grace and love and that we are then focused upon him and his coming and he says that his words won't pass away which should be just such a relief because sometimes we look at the world and we think oh are we drifting away are people forgetting the words of christ is are his words being distorted yes they are are they being forgotten but he says his words will be maintained right until this generation passes away and by generation he's not talking about the way we talk about generation he's not talking about these little 20 year periods that we like to name you know uh he's talking about mankind he's saying as long as there are people 
there will be my word among them because of his grace, because his kingdom has been established. So we can rest in him. We can rest in the knowledge that his word will not go away. We can hold our heads high because of his love and anticipate his coming. And again, St. Paul describes for us this longing that we're supposed to have. And he describes it first in a way that we, um, I think, are familiar with, which is the, the family, the church family, right? He's saying that Timothy has been away, and now Timothy has come back. And he talks about the longing that he had to see Timothy again and the, of Timothy's return. He talks about the time that he had among the Thessalonians and about his longing to go back and see them again. Right, So it's his relationship with the church. It's his saying, um, you know, we have a love for one another. We have a, a desire to see each other again. And we're longing to see you again the way that we long to see an old friend and family. And that anticipation of when are they coming and how much time is it until they get here. Right, That anticipation that we have for that much-loved guest is the anticipation that Paul starts with in talking about his relationship with Timothy and his relationship with the church. And then he expands that to say, this is the same love and longing that we have for Christ and for him coming again. We're supposed to be waiting for Christ to come again the same way for that long-expected guest. And we're supposed to be thinking about and preparing our hearts and our minds, our homes, for his coming again. And that's what we're doing in Advent. This is the cleaning we do before the big party. This is the rearranging of the furniture. This is reestablishing our hearts. This is moving out all those things that would be in the way of our guests to sit down and to join us at supper. All those things that we need to remove so that Christ can come into our hearts and our minds and so that we can dwell with him and he with us. And we do that with a longing and an anticipation. It's he that establishes our hearts. He says that we may abound in love for one another, to abound in love for one another. We're not just supposed to kind of like each other and get along. We're supposed to be abounding in love for one another. It should be apparent to the whole world, the love that we have for one another in the church and the longing that we have to come together. And that he, in this longing, is going to establish our hearts blameless in holiness. We don't do that. He does that. He establishes our hearts blameless. And then we're able to wait at the coming for our Lord, what does it say? With his saints. Again, it is all those who have come before us, our grandparents in faith, those who have taught us the gospel, those who generation before generation have proclaimed his word and have brought forth the holiness and knowledge of the church. All those are going to be coming together with him at his second coming. Isn't it interesting that we were talked about in Kansas City, Missouri, these last couple of weeks. You remember Noila and Luis Ortega that played uh, for us several years and left last year? They went last year to Kansas City, Missouri, found a little Anglican church there, St. Aidan's, not much bigger than us, worshiping in uh, a rented space. And they sat down in the back to gather with the other musicians and they talked about where they were going to be going for Thanksgiving. And uh, they said, Vegas. And the other couple that was there playing guitar and singing with them said, Oh, we're going to Vegas too. And they said, Where are you going to church? Well, Jesus the Good Shepherd. And they said, Jesus the Good Shepherd in Henderson? 
And it turned out that that couple had worshipped with us over ten years ago. We don't think of ourselves as being a big missionary sending type place, do we? But here were two couples that we had shared the gospel with, that we had shared Holy Communion with, meeting together, and they spoke of us in a loving enough way that they came and celebrated Thanksgiving with us here. That is a longing to see each other again. That is a family of Christ that we are growing and being a part of day in and day out. That is a love that we need to share and that we need to hold fast to. Because that group that is coming with our Lord will blow us away. People we had long forgotten. Saints we had never known. Love for Christ that we had never experienced or imagined. And coming to us to fill us and to abide with us and to share with us in a Christmas that you would never have seen before.